Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. If you need to use the table of contents and all that good stuff, go for it. That's what it's there for. But while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a man named Ronnie Edry. Ronnie is an Israeli citizen. He's uh, the father of two, a loving husband, but he's also a graphic designer. And growing up in the state of Israel, he um, was consistently surrounded with rhetoric about war with Israel's neighbors, right? Israel is constantly under threat from its neighbors, and so specifically the enemy of Iran. And as he was growing up, he always understood that it wasn't a matter of if Iran would attack Israel, but when, at least among those that he was with. In fact, he shares the story of being in a convenience store and standing in line, and the man in front of him is checking out, and the cashier says, I don't know if you've heard, but there's supposed to be 10,000 bombs on Israel. And the customer says, no, not just 10,000 bombs, but 10,000 bombs a day, right? Which is this constant threat, of aware of uh, an imminent war with Iran. And so he was kind of intrigued by it and a little bit fed up with it. And so as a graphic designer, and not a, it's not that he was a very successful one as well. He said he, all, he constantly posted stuff to Facebook, but nothing ever really happens, right? And so this one, this one particular time, though, he goes and takes a picture with him and his child. And he puts this cool quote underneath it and goes to bed. This is the picture that he sent to the people. If you can't read it from your seat, it says, Iranians, we will never bomb your country. We love you. And so he never, ever gets any kind of success stories out of his work, which I've said before. But, and so, but that night he goes to bed, posts it, thinks nothing of it. The next morning he wakes up and he has hundreds upon hundreds of messages in his inbox. Two types. One are from Israelis saying, I want my picture. I want my own poster. In fact, his wife the next day made him go out and, and take her picture, right, to get her own poster. Iranians, we love you. We will never bomb your country. But then also he's getting all kinds of messages from Iranians themselves, which is really cool because he said that uh, growing up in Israel, you're never friends with Iranians. You never, you don't have them on Facebook. You don't have any kind of interaction with them. But somehow they came across his photo as it was shared and they send their stories. One particular one that's cool. Go to the next slide, Daryl. Is um, this little this, this girl says that she growing up in school, she was required every day to enter her school, stepping upon, stepping over the flag of Israel as a sign of disrespect to them, as a sign of hatred unto them. She said, I've never felt hatred for you. She said, in fact, she writes him in her message and she says, I love that blue. I love that star. I love that flag. His single message, Iranians, we love you. We will never bomb your country. Had, had created this worldwide movement. In fact, so many people wanted their pictures. Go ahead and go to the next slide. You see, his friends wanted pictures. Iranians, we love you. We will never bomb your country. And then Iranians themselves were sending their own messages back saying, my Israeli friends, I don't hate you. I don't want more love and peace. And in fact, you can see her, her eyes are hidden behind the poster because they don't have freedom of speech there. But they're risking their own lives to say, no matter what our politicians say, we love you. We want to be your friends. So it creates this huge movement. So much so that it creates a, they create a, an Iran loves Israel Facebook page, an Israel loves Iran Facebook page, and it explodes. Now there's Israel loves Palestine, there's Palestine loves Israel, and it's just this huge movement. So much so that he's had the opportunity to meet several Iranian citizens and become their friends, which is so cool. That never happens. He says, you don't understand. This never happens. And he's becoming, he's having coffee with them, talking about sports with them. And in fact, now it's, it's, it's grown to the point. So as you know, the World Cup was, is still going on and has been going on the past couple of weeks. And uh, Iran had a team. And so I don't think Israel did, or if they did, I, don't, I didn't hear about it. Um, and so they put up posters all over Tel Aviv and said, from Israel, go Iran. Let's meet up in Tel Aviv to cheer for Iran's World Cup team. 
So they were meeting in local bars and areas to cheer for Iran's team as a way of saying, we love you, you're our enemies, but you're not, you're not our enemies, you're our friends and we love you. And then finally, recently, right, after the deaths of the three uh, kidnapped Israeli teenagers, and uh, they got messages from Iran that said things like this, you may rest in peace, my little brothers from Shirin in Iran. These people who are supposed to be enemies, these people who are supposed to have nothing to do with one another because of one Facebook message sparks this global kind of outpouring of love between enemies, between political factions. What a beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus is talking about when he tells us to love our enemies. And our goal this morning, as we continue to read in the Sermon on the Mount, is to take this kind of idealized portrait that we see thousands of miles away and to somehow embody it in our homes, in our families, in our friendships, and in our workplace. It's to take it out of just the simple Facebook message idea into a heartbeat that throbs, that loves those who hurt us, those that harm us, those that persecute us, etc. This, this difficult teaching of Jesus. You know, this, is, this teaching of Jesus, love your enemies, which we're going to read in just a second, this teaching kind of is where uh, the rubber meets the road, if you will. For discipleship, right? I think we're all good people in the room. I would, I, would, I would assume that most of us, in fact, all of us are. We're good. We love God. We want to pursue God. We want to get better at praying and reading our word. We want to be patient. We want to love our spouse or our family more, etc. But this is where, like, I, I think this is where the church struggles the most, right? It's, it's, it's not objectifying, but in fact, pursuing and loving our enemies. But the beauty is that Jesus is here this morning to mend that in us to heal that in us so that we might become a people who embody his very life unto our enemies. So you're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Can we stand out of honor for, the, for, the, for God's word today? I just want to read. We're going to read verses 38 through 48. And um, this is what he says. I'll read it from the screens. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But if someone strikes you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Are not even the tax collectors doing the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you say amen to God's word? Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. God. We've invited you here. We've worshipped you this morning. We've celebrated you. We've sung of your love. We've sung of your name. And Lord God, we now ask that that name would become that which transforms our behavior. It transforms who we are. God, I ask that over these next few moments that we would hear your words, that we would obey them. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now, the best way to kind of understand what Jesus is getting at is to kind of walk through what he gives us here. So, um, because there's a lot of really cool images that Jesus is using, and I want us to kind of see how disturbing it is, what, that, that, that Jesus, how disturbing the command is that Jesus is giving us. So first he says, you have heard it. So, so first of all, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount all summer so far. I think this is the sixth week of that series. And um, as you know, earlier in the chapter, chapter 5, he talks about um, that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so as a means of showing that, he goes through six different case studies in which he quotes an Old Testament law and says, you have heard it said. And then he gives his own perspective, but I, t- but I say unto you, right? Now, what he's doing here is he's not abolishing the Old Testament law, and he's not saying that doesn't matter anymore. What he's saying is he's giving us, as one who fulfills the law, he's the one that's showing us its telos, its goal. He's the one saying that what the law is pointing to, what the law is trying to get at, is exactly what I tell you, right? So when he says, I tell you, do this, he's not saying that doesn't matter anymore. He's saying, actually, that's what the law is trying to get at in you, right? And so when we're in the fifth of those when he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is often called, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is found, I think, three times in the Old Testament. And it's often called the lex talionis, which is uh, Latin for the law of retaliation. And just to give you an idea of what that law is, let's see it in Leviticus 24 together. This is what he says. This is what Moses says. Anyone who kills a human being shall be put to death. Anyone who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. That is, if I kill your animal, animals were always, you know, the source of income, the source of uh, well-being for families. And so if I kill your animal, I have to give you another animal in return or give you money to buy another one. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. Now, this sounds really barbaric, right? First of all, like, you, you punch my tooth out, and so I'm supposed to give you mine back. It's a really weird image, and it sounds kind of this really ancient society that doesn't really fit with ours. But actually, it's a law of quite beautiful justice. Because I want you to think about this for a minute. Revenge always takes place in very intense cycles, does it not? That is, if we are left unchecked to ourselves, we will continually dish out more than we receive. So, for example, we get in a fight, I insult you, so you punch me, so I break your legs, so you stab me, so I shoot you, so you shoot my whole family, so I bomb your village, right? That's the way that this goes in a common interaction of revenge, right? If left unchecked, that's kind of the way it goes. And so the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing is a means of saying Look, the punishment should fit the crime. If you break his leg, then he can break yours back and nothing more. It's a means of maintaining that vengeful attitude. And so we have it in our society as well. It's the punishment fits the crime. It's the same reason that when you're pulled over for speeding, that you are not shot dead there in the car, right? Because you don't deserve the death penalty for going 15 over on 575. You just deserve a $500 payment, which seems fair, right? Not at all. Um, (laughs) But, but, so the punishment should fit the crime. That's what this, this law is getting at. And so Jesus is quoting that. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, he's saying, this is what the law is trying to get you to become. He says, do not resist an evil person. Now, resist means to kind of stand up against or to fight back against. Do not resist an evil person. Now, it's these kind of commands that we often make Jesus out to be kind of... Uh, a guy that lives in Candyland, like in utopian world with like unicorns and lions laying down with lambs and stuff because Jesus is so nice. But notice what he says. Do not resist what? An evil person. He recognizes that the pain that is done unto us, the pain that we receive, the injuries that we receive, the hurt that we receive from others is evil. He's calling it evil. 
He's not, he's not dumbing it down and saying, do not resist a not nice person. No, do not resist an evil. He knows it's evil. He's calling it evil. But in spite of that, he's saying, yeah, you're not one that fights back if you're my follower. So he recognizes the pain there. So that's the, where the law is pointing. Don't even, don't even fight back. Don't resist. Don't oppose those who harm you. And he gives us three really cool examples. And the first is the most well-known, right? If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, think about this for a minute. In fact, Trevor, come here. I'm going to need you. I'm not going to hit you, I promise. I hit like a girl anyway. So, all right. So, so uh, do not resist. An, uh, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, well, in the ancient world, you don't do anything with your left hand. The left hand is kind of uh, the, well, it's the dirty hand, right? It's the hand that you use the restroom with. All right. So, um, but you do everything. Everything is right-handed. I know it's gross. But anyway, so, um, so if you think about it, if I'm going to strike Trevor on the right cheek, I have to do it how? I'm not going to do it like this because that's goofy looking. I'm going to do it with the back of my hand, right? And so Trevor's job is then to turn that cheek to me, right? Thank you, Trevor, my lovely assistant. So, but that's important, right? The backhanded um, slap is important because that's a sign of extreme insult. Jesus isn't talking about kind of pure physical abuse as much as he's talking about the, the, the disgrace and the shame and the dishonor that a slap across the face means. Even today, right? When, when, you see, when you're at a, a romantic restaurant and you see a woman slap a man across the face, it's not the pain that hurts the worst, right? It's the shame, it's the dishonor that it's caused upon him to show that he's somebody that doesn't love rightly, whatever. So it's a, it's a means of saying it's, it's, a, it's an insult, it's a dishonor, it's a disgrace. And so Jesus is saying when someone disgraces you, when someone insults you, when someone takes advantage of you, dishonors you, ruins your reputation, your job is not simply not to hit back, but to give them the opportunity to do it again. Why? That, that doesn't make any sense. That's, that's extremely radical. That's extremely impractical. And the second one's even worse. So he says, if someone wants to sue you for your tunic, the tunic is the inner garment that people wore. In the ancient world, you had two layers of clothes. You had the inner garment and then the coat or the outer, outer garment. He said, if somebody sues you and wants to take that inner coat, then you give to them your cloak as well. Now, the cloak is significant because this was the one thing in the Old Testament law that could not be taken from you. So let's read about this. In Exodus 22, this is what Moses tells the people. If you take your neighbor's cloak, that outer cloak, as a pledge, so that saying, I owe you money and I can't pay you back, so I give you my cloak, return it to him by sunset. Because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So you can see there that the outer cloak, they didn't have comforters and bed sheets. They kept warm at night by using their big, long coats. And so Jesus is saying, this is the one thing that you are entitled to by the law of Moses to keep. And so when Jesus says, you're sued for your inner tunic, you give them the one thing that by the law of Moses you are entitled to keep. You give them everything. That's absurd, right? And think about it too. If you only have two layers of clothes, right? Someone sues and takes your first one, and then you give to them the second one. Friends, you're as naked as the day you were born, standing there before them. So, I mean, this is, this is significant. This is absurd. This is hyperbolic. This is, this is uh, Jesus, the practical, wonderful, ethical teacher, seems to be falling apart here in some way. And the third one's significant as well. He says, and if, if, if someone asks you to go one mile, no, it's not asks, but forces or compels you. So in the ancient world, the Roman soldiers could force or compel peasants to do whatever they wanted them to do. He said, if somebody compels you to go one mile, then you walk with them 
2, saying, if your oppressor comes and asks you to do this unreasonable deed of walking one mile, you don't just fulfill it gladly, but you double it because you want to. Which is, again, crazy. And he says, give to anyone who asks you, and do not turn away from anyone who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is talking about money there. He's not talking like borrow time. He's talking if somebody asks money from you, then you give them money. Which is disturbing, right? So if everybody comes up to me after service and asks for $100, according to the teaching of Jesus, I'm supposed to give you $100. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> because I don't, yeah, I'd run out with it after like four people. Um, so I'm kidding. But I think this is important because Jesus is talking about this complete and total openness with respect to all that we are. That we get that our time, that our money, that our energy, that our character, that our reputation all long, belongs in the hands of God. That I don't have to justify it to other people. And then the last one, don't just not resist, but you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, love your neighbors in the Old Testament, but hate your enemy isn't. Hate your enemy, Jesus is just talking about the common cultural practice of hating those that hate us, right? Which is what we do today. It's kind of the common cultural practice. We hate those that hate us back. But I tell you, love your enemies, actively pursue their good, right? Which is is a crazy thought and pray for those who persecute you. And as I've hinted at before, this is where Jesus' kind of ethical side totally implodes. We often want to make Jesus out to be not just like unicorns in fairy tale land, but also kind of like the ideal ethical teacher that Jesus, everything Jesus says just makes sense. If you just follow Jesus, your life just makes sense. But I want you to think about this. If Jesus is your life coach in these moments, he's a terrible one, all right? So if you go to a mentor or a lawyer even, and you say, listen, I don't understand. Somebody is suing me for all of my money. And your lawyer says, oh my goodness. Have you thought about giving them your house as well? That would be a good idea. That's a good way to go about it. Or somebody comes along and says, can you, my boss is forcing me to work 60 hours this week. And I, there's no way I can get it done. And he says, oh my, that's terrible. You know what I would do? I would work 120. It's absurd. It makes Jesus, the wonderful ethical teacher, begins to implode here. And he's asking us to do things that make absolutely no sense. And it's exactly here where Christians kind of depart from Jesus. And we say, well, Jesus really didn't mean it. So I can kind of treat my enemies and those that oppress me and those that insult me and those that get on my nerves however I want. As long as I'm a good person to my family, to my kids, etc. And in fact, to kind of get at this tension, uh, Eugene Peterson who is a pastor out in Seattle, this is a picture of him. He's most famous, he's written a ton of wonderful Christian books, but he's most famous for being the one who translated the message translation, right? And the message remix, whatever that is. Um, so he's, he's responsible for those translations. And uh, he tells this story in one of his books that when he was a little kid, he remembers growing up in, this, in a small town in Montana. And he remembers it as pristinely as one can remember anything. He says that my home was like the Garden of Eden. He said it was just wonderful. We constantly played with one another. He grew up in a Christian home, a strong Christian home, constantly in Sunday school, constantly in church. And he'd always been taught, turn the other cheek and bless those who persecute you, etc. And so he goes to uh, school, and this is the first time that he encounters the world, if you will, people that are mean. And he's a first grader, and he's in the classroom with a second grader named Garrison Johns. And Garrison Johns sees little peaceful Eugene and makes Eugene his project. For the year, his personal project to bully him all year long. In fact, he finds out he's a Christian and calls him a Jesus sissy all the time, right? And so every day on, on uh, Eugene's walk home, Garrison would approach him and begin to pick on him, shove him around, and even beat him up. He'd come home bruised. And his mother, as a strong Christian woman, believing the teachings of Jesus, says, Listen, Christians have been treated this way for centuries. You got to get used to it. 
which is not what many of us would say, <laughs> but just what she says, you got to get used to it. This is kind of the way that Jesus has asked us to be. This is what we're being obedient to him. And so he's walking home one day in March as the days are getting longer, and something changes in him. He's with six or seven of his friends, so he's with a big group. Garrison starts to pick on him, and this is what he writes. Something snapped within me, totally uncalculated, totally out of character. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized that I was stronger than he I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. I mean, picture Christmas story, right? Like little Ralphie. He was helpless under me. At my mercy, I was, it was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. A torrent of vengeful invective poured from them. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood, more cheering. Now the audience was bringing out the best in me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. (laughs) Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) How awesome is that? We love the story, right? Because it it combines everything that we are. We love Jesus. But man, we'd love a good vengeance story, don't we? And if our kid was in any different situation, we we would probably tell him different. In fact, I told my wife I was going to tell this, so it's okay. Last week, Kennedy was in the nursery and um, Kennedy has this habit, for whatever reason, after leaving the nursery, to immediately say what went wrong. So it's like, oh, she took my passy or whatever. So Amanda picked her up. I didn't know anything. And I get home, and I'm talking to them. And I say, so how was, how was the nursery? And Amanda said, well, Kennedy said a boy pushed her down. I said, oh, my goodness. So what did you say? Amanda said, I asked her if she pushed him back, right? Which is what many of us would do, right? It just makes them, we're not going to be bullied. We're not going to be pushed around. We're not going to be a family that takes that stuff from other people. And and it's exactly here that we see that, that not to say, I would, I would have said the same thing to my daughter, it's no different. But it's exactly here that we see that, that that world that we think we've denied in following Christ is deeply settled within us. That thing that we think, I'm a good person, I don't do, I don't do the big things, the whatever, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever those big things are. But when it comes to the little, but when it comes to loving your, he didn't mean it that way. And so we justify it, we turn it away, and we realize we look no different from the world. And so how do we find ourselves to become people who um, obey this command of Jesus? And I think it's most important to realize that what Jesus is doing is not giving us a new law. Jesus isn't coming along and saying, I'm trying to make you feel really bad, so obey me in this way. He's coming along and he's saying, oh, he's casting a vision before us. He's not giving us a standard that we can't meet. He's instead saying, I want to make you into the type of people that do this. So he's giving us a vision of the kind of people he wants us to become. And that vision has three primary aspects. And I want to talk about them in order. Those three aspects are God's character, a new vision of God's character, God's cross, and God's kingdom. The first, God's character. Notice what Jesus says in the love your enemies passage. Go to the next slide, Daryl. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And his whole justification for this command is what? He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you. What reward will you have? 
Are not even the tax collectors doing the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here it is. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we'll see this whole rhetoric of love your enemies all over the place. Just watch the Oprah Network for 10 minutes. She'll have some wonderful story of loving your enemies, right? Because she's just the great guru of our age. But notice how they justify the command. They justify love your enemies not based on God or anything else. They'll just say, because we want to make the world a better place. Because we want to leave a better world for our grandchildren. Because it's, it's the right thing to do, right? And Jesus has no talk of that. Jesus is not concerned about, you know, this little, this, whatever subjective presentation of the world as a better place. Jesus says, you know why you love your enemies? Because God has loved you. Because God is one who loves his enemies. That's it. It takes place in the character of God. And notice what he says. So that you may love your enemies so that you may be children of your father in heaven. So that you may not be called, but actually become such that to love our enemies, to not return insult, to not return pain, to not return uh, sarcastic comments, whatever it is, to not be that kind of, to be an individual that loves those who persecute us, is to be one who uh, embodies God's very character, one, but also to understand what it means to be God's child. See, what God, what Jesus is essentially saying is we don't understand what it means to be his child until we are people who love our enemies. We don't, there's an aspect of God's child, of, of being his son or his daughter, that we don't understand unless we are beginning to love our enemies. Notice what he says. If you love those who love you, who cares, right? Everybody does that. We think, I think I'm a good Christian man because I love my wife and daughter. But Jesus is saying, my love is not seen in that. My love is seen when you love those who harm you, who frustrate you, who drive you crazy, who insult you. That's where my love is embodied in the world. That's where my character is seen in the world. It's seen in those moments when I choose not to fight back and when I love with all of my heart those that I think are unlovable. That's where my character is seen in the world. And notice how he concludes it. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we think of perfect as this kind of, God has all the things checked off on his box, and so I've got to get all mine checked off on my box. Be kind, be patient, be helpful, whatever it is. But that's not the perfect image that Jesus is going for. The word for perfect is probably a translation of, the, of an Aramaic or a Semitic word, shalom, uh, shalom, which is wholeness, integrity, peace, uh, self-sufficient, right? And so just as God is so self-sufficient in himself, so secure in who he is, that he is able to provide rain and sun for all, no matter of their moral condition, so we are called to be so self-sufficient in him, so God-sufficient in our lives, that we can easily, easily love and bring peace and restoration in whatever context we find ourselves. But it's not simply saying, okay, God's good to people, so I got to be good to people. But it... it, it, it boils down to an an experiential understanding of that love. Such that I cannot, I have no idea what it means to love my enemies unless I am one who has experienced the unconditional grace and love of God. And if I, as, as I'm continually experiencing and understanding that grace, then I can become one where that love explodes out of my life. See, it doesn't begin with saying, okay, God, you want me to do this, so I'm just going to do it. But it begins with a perfect understanding of his love, experiencing it and finding my whole identity and self-worth in that love. And as I do that, I find it no problem to love you even though you're hurting me, to not return insults. See, the problem is we're just not, self, we're not sufficient in him. He's not enough for us. We have to defend our own honor. We don't trust him with our honor. So it becomes, boils down to an experience of the character of God. Let's, we could summarize it this way. The ability... To obey Christ's command to love our enemies begins not with notions of a better world, 
but with an ever-deepening participation in God's love. We can only come to understand what it means to be God's child as we imitate God's love for his enemies. He's invited us to be his children, and that is not just sitting at his feet. It's a part of it that begins there, but it ultimately is expressed in loving those who we find unlovable in our world. So that's the first point, God's character. The second point is God's cross. God's cross. So Jesus doesn't give us a command that he himself doesn't fulfill, right? Jesus embodies this love on the cross for us. That's where God's love is seen. And I love the way that First Peter talks about this with respect to, he's encouraging slaves in the, in the community. They're, they're an oppressed community, a persecuted community. And Peter is encouraging them to be a community who doesn't retaliate, but that suffers for doing good. And this is what he says to them. But if you suffer for doing good, and this is God's word to us, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Look at this, leaving you an example. So Christ's suffering is an example for us that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he's saying, why don't you retaliate? Well, because Jesus didn't. But what's so significant here is that Jesus provides us an example. So think about the way the cross is commonly talked about in church context. So the cross is often a symbol of transaction. In, our, in, in contemporary Christianity. And what I mean by that is that we see the cross, and it's a true vision, I'm not discrediting it at all, but it's a vision in which we see the cross as a place where I bring all of my dirtiness, all of my sin, all of my uh, twistedness, I bring it to the cross, right? And in exchange for all of that, because of the radical grace of God, he gives me forgiveness, love, wholeness, purity, etc. But the cross then just becomes this place where it's an, un, an unlimited dispense of God's grace, and that's true. But it results in this kind of gospel of sin management where we're only concerned with, am I forgiven? Am I forgiven? This is why, you know, at youth camp, you give your life to God every 12 hours because you want to make sure that you're forgiven because you said something stupid in the pool and you want to make sure if Jesus comes back within the next three hours that you're ready, right? So it's constantly, am I forgiven? Am I forgiven? Am I forgiven? It's this anxiety of forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't just talk about the cross as this locus of forgiveness but he also talks about the cross as a symbol of imitation, right? So Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, you come to the cross and receive grace, but the cross then becomes the symbol of the disciple of Jesus. So much so that Jesus even says, remember, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus isn't talking about a dieting plan. He's not talking like, you know, lay off the snack wells for three days and so you deny yourself. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a complete denial of everything in which we find worth for ourselves. A complete denial of our story and taking up his example of suffering for the good of others. Christ, as uh, this is hard to say, but Christ has called us to suffer. Not for the sake of suffering, not for the sake of pain. Jesus isn't a sadist, right? But he's called us to suffer for the good of others. And, you know, so much so, Jesus, if you think about it, like as a male especially, if I were to go to a Braves game this afternoon and get in a squabble with somebody and they punch me in the face and I don't retaliate, right? I'm immediately perceived as a coward, as someone weak, as someone um, without credit, as wimpy, pathetic, etc. And you look at the example of Jesus, 
who by all other accounts is considered pathetic, weak, powerless. But it is precisely in what the world would see as pathetic, weak, and powerless in this death, in this suffering for others, that Jesus Christ overcomes the darkness, evil, and hatred of the world done against him. So we, as Jesus' followers, as we receive as much as it hurts, as we receive the sarcastic comments, as we receive the the insults, the dishonor, the discredit, the, the neglect, as we receive all of that and we entrust it to Christ, we are sharing in his cross and ultimately trusting that as we share in his cross, that even though it feels like we're not winning the argument, even though it feels like we're passive and pathetic, that in that moment we are exemplifying him and actually participating in the very event that overcomes the very darkness that was done against us. That's, that's beautiful, right? So that as we receive it, if we trust in the Christ event enough, we are sharing in that moment so much, so much so that we have the, not the ability, but the grace of God that as we receive it, we are participating in the event that overcomes the hatred done against us. That's a cool thought that we are called to share in that, that we have the privilege of being like Jesus. This is the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 20th century theologian. He suffered under the Nazis. He was ultimately killed under their regime. He had actually left Germany to come to America when the Nazi event started. And he decided after being there that um, he felt called of God to go back and resist uh, in, in his suffering the, of the Nazi regime, which is just super cool, right? All right, here we go. So this is what he says. The passion of Christ is the victory of divine love over the powers of evil. And therefore, it is the only supportable basis for Christian obedience. Once again, Jesus calls those who follow him to share his passion. Passion is another word for for his cross, his suffering. How can we convince the world by our preaching of the passion when we shrink from that passion in our own lives? On the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law he himself established and thus graciously keeps his disciples in the fellowship of his suffering, of this suffering. The cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. But it was just this participation, the the disciples' participation in the cross, which the disciples were granted when Jesus called them to him. They, the disciples, are called blessed because of their visible participation in the cross. We are called blessed when we don't retaliate because we are participating in the one event that gave us life. Jesus, as one who suffers for his enemies, we imitate that and then share in his sufferings. As as Paul says, I fill up what is lacking in my flesh with respect to Christ's suffering. We are called to do the same. And as we do that, we find ourselves becoming like our Savior. And there is no greater gift. We could summarize it this way. To endure the pain of loving our enemies is to share in the precious and victorious suffering of our Savior. As we practice such love, we are granted the gift of being like him. The image of the cross is more than a declaration of God's unfathomable grace upon us. It is the glorious destiny to which he has called us. The cross is the very shape of discipleship. We have not, we've been called to be more than just God-likers. <laughs> we've called him people to imitate his suffering, his cross. Right? So that's the, the first thing is uh, we need to see God's character. That's what motivates us. That's what gives us the energy. We need to, to, to love our enemies. We need to see God's cross as the shape into which Jesus is forming us. And then we need to see God's kingdom. And this, is, this one's briefer. I know it's hot in here. I'm like sweating profusely up here. All right, so God's kingdom. And this is significant because um, 
oftentimes the Sermon on the Mount is read as this kind of ethical treatise. Jesus is just teaching us what's great, what's good, how, it's, how we are to be good. Gosh, I kept calling. How we are to be good people. But Jesus is doing more than that. Jesus is actually casting a vision of what his kingdom looks like. Jesus is saying, you want to know what my kingdom's like? You know what my kingdom people are like? They're like people who sever uh, lust in their hearts. They're like people who not only don't murder, but are people who uh, eliminate anger in their hearts. They're not only people who, who fulfill their oaths, but they don't even have to take oaths at all because they, they speak so truthfully to one another. Jesus is casting a vision of what his kingdom looks like. And Jesus is here. So, so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand that Jesus is casting a vision of what it means to be God's people in the present tense. So the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by Jesus's ministry. So we're, we are experiencing it now as we gather. But at the same time, it's not yet fully realized. So obviously, because there's still pain, destruction, and war. And so when we gather together, we are a colony of the future kingdom. So that when people are in our midst, they see something different about us, right? They see something that we are a group of people who embody different types of living. And one of those is loving our enemies. And so I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about the future kingdom of God. It is going to be filled with your enemies. Filled. You will be worshiping alongside of them. And I don't think that God's going to be the kind of God that's like, oh, she didn't really like him. So let's put them on opposite sides of this kind of heavenly continuum, whatever that looks like. Let's put her house over here and his over here. Make sure that she's with all her friends and family that, that grew up with her, right? God's, God's the kind of God to kind of put that enemy's house right next, or put you in the same house. That's probably what's going to happen. You're just going to like kind of live with them, right? But it's going to be filled with our enemies worshiping them. So if we have that vision that that's where the world is going truly, not some kind of utopian fantasy, but that's where God's taking the world, then imagine that when I receive this pain from others and I don't dish it back and I choose to love them in response, then actually what's so cool is that I am, I don't have, it's not just that I have to love you in response, but I I see you as a potential and future friend in God. That's what God's trying to get us to see. He's trying to, to look into the eyes of the other person and to see his image in it. And to see one whom Christ died for. And in that moment to say, okay, you're not just my enemy, but I have, a, I, have, I have a hope that one day we will worship God together. I have a hope that one day you'll be my friend. God's trying to give us that kind of eyes, those kind of eyes, that kind of a vision. And so Martin Luther King, in his book, Strength to Love, talks about it this way. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will, we, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. Look at this. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. It's our vision to see them as, as, we, as we suffer as much as, as passive, as weak, as pathetic as that looks. We are sharing in Christ's suffering and we are living out the vision of that person becoming our friend. And look at the result of Martin Luther King's ministry. Right? It worked. He won friends in the process. So let's summarize that point this way. And then three quick takeaways and we're out of here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus grants us a vision of God's kingdom people. Captivated by this vision, we find ourselves inhabiting a world 
where enemies become friends. Who are your enemies? Maybe that's too harsh of a word. Who are those that hurt you or have hurt you? Who are those that have insulted you? Who are those that have ruined your reputation? Who are those that have stolen from you? Taken what you feel to be rightfully yours? Why not love them in response? How can we do that? Well, three quick things right here. Trust, accountability, and practice. The first, how do we do this? Outside of just seeing this beautiful portrait of a God who has loved us despite ourselves and a cross that saved us despite ourselves and a kingdom that makes all enemies into friends, just just even uh, beyond that vision, how do we do it? The first is trust. And as I said this earlier, why do we retaliate? Why do we do it? One, it feels good. (laughs) But two, um, it's also because we don't trust God. We don't trust God to, to, to defend our honor. We don't trust God to judge justly. We don't trust God to restore the things stolen from us. We don't trust God with our money because if somebody steals from us, well, then I have to pursue them and hunt them down and, and ruin their lives, right? Because that makes me feel better. It makes me get back what, I, what they took from me. And ultimately, Jesus is calling us to trust God with our energy, our time, our possessions, our money, our heart, our dignity, our character. All of it goes unto him such that if it's harmed, it's still in his hands. I don't have to worry about it. That even if the whole world sees us as pathetic, weak, passive, spineless, that instead we know that all of those things that everybody else thinks is what life subsists in are actually found in our Heavenly Father. We trust God with it. There's a story recently of a woman named uh, Jessica Eves in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And she was getting ready to check out at the grocery store and a man came and stole her wallet out of her purse and he ran to the front of the, he, he started to check out, he kind of sneakily stole it, he started to check out his own groceries. She caught up to him. She said, I know you stole my wallet. I saw you do it. I'm going to give you two options. The first is you can give it back and I'll completely forgive you and I'll even pay for your groceries. And the second is that I'm going to call the police if you don't give it back to me. And so he, he immediately, he hangs his head and he begins to weep and sincerely apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he walks back with her to the cash register gives her back her wallet. She doesn't carry a lot of cash. She only had $28 cash in her wallet and his groceries were $27. She gave him all the money she had, the very person that had stolen from her because she was following the example of Jesus. And she ultimately said, my life does not subsist in my wallet. This person is more important than this wallet. God's heart is for this person, not my wallet. And so I trust him with all my money and I'm going to love him in response. It's trusting God. First is trust. Second is accountability. Accountability has become a word in the Christian community that is often just kind of associated with sexual sins, right? I mean, it's, it's what I've commonly heard it. How, do you have an accountability partner? Do you have an accountability partner? What if we could be accountable with respect to revenge and loving our enemies? If we could say, yeah, I can see they've hurt you, but can, you can find restoration and healing among, among us, among this community. We'll find healing. There's no need to retaliate. I'm here for you. We're here for you. We want to follow the example of Jesus. Accountable. Holding each other accountable to not be people of revenge. And finally, practice. Practice. And this is what's so much so important. Jesus is just calling us to do it. To just try it. If it happens to us, it's not you're not going to want to love them back. I'm not going to want to love you back if you were to kind of come up here and punch me in the jaw, right? I'm not going to want to give you a hug. It's not going to happen. But I'm going to discipline myself in that moment and say no. I'm not fighting back. I'm not insulting back. I'm not emailing back. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not doing it. I'm not. So it just begins with practice and you're going to fail. We're going to fail. But it just begins with practice. And we find that as we practice, that we actually are turning into the God that we love and serve. 
This is what he says. This, this is a cool story from uh, Drew and Mandy Williams. I'll close with this. Drew and Mandy Williams are our missionaries to Honduras. And we were in a small group with them recently, and they shared this story about the early part of their ministry. And this is what uh, Drew writes. In the first years of our married life, Mandy and I served the Lord in a small village in the eastern end of Honduras called Palacios. Though our hearts were set on sharing the love of Christ with all of the local people, not all of them were easy to love. One particularly spiteful woman in the community happened to be our neighbor across the path. In our first few years there, she seemed to do everything she could to run us off. First, she started to yell out at us from the path in front of our home, cursing us at the top of her lungs. Some nights, she would come to just outside our window after midnight, loudly threatening to set our house on fire or to kill us. Over time, we suffered her vandalism, theft, verbal abuse, physical threats, as well as all manner of demonic activity in her life. Before I realized it, I was really feeling hatred toward her. I loathed her so much that I found myself crying out to God to either save her or take her out, and the latter is what I preferred. (laughs) Then one day, in the middle of my angry cry, the Holy Spirit reminded me that I was to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. Lord, I thought, how can I love her? She hates us, and I certainly don't feel any love for her. The same way I have loved you, he answered. The Lord Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross, but he humbled himself and was obedient unto death. The Lord began to teach me that love was a choice and not an emotional feeling. He taught me that I could love her as an act of obedience to him, even when I did not feel like it. Though the desire was still not there, I began to ask the Lord to give me the strength and the ability to bless her. Listen to this. Over the following weeks, each time she would curse, I would respond, God bless you. We love you. At first, my emotions cringed, making me feel like a hypocrite. But I kept choosing to respond in obedience to his word. God bless you. We love you. To my surprise, over time, though there was little noticeable change in her, a change happened in me. I I found myself no longer hating her. I found myself truly wanting to bless her. Instead of loathing her, I suddenly wanted the Lord to save her and set her free from her afflictions. Miraculously, for the remaining years we were in that community, God caused a great love for her to consistently flow out of our home. Our hearts will follow our actions. So if we can just be people who practice it, who hates you, who loathes you, who insults you, to just return in obedience, just simple obedience to him, God, you've called me to this, so I'm not going to do it in response, and I'm just going to say I love you. And we'll find ourselves with the heartbeat of God beating within our chests. And that is the true gift of all life. In the next few moments, we're going to take communion together. And I cannot think of a better response to this teaching, to what Jesus has given us than communion. Because in this act of communion, we're not simply saying, Jesus, I accept all grace and love from you and all that you've given me. But we're also saying unto him, Jesus, I identify with you. I am a disciple who follows your example. That in, as we take communion together, we're essentially saying, um, just as your body and blood was broken for me, so Lord God, may I give of myself, may my body break for those whom you love, for their good, and for that they may be a part of your kingdom. So over these next few moments, after I pray, we're going to take communion together. I'll lead us in the sacrament, and then we'll um, take offering and go home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a hard teaching. We pray over these next few moments, Lord God, that as we share in your body and blood, that we would not just be grateful for what you've done, 
but that we would identify with you, that we would be those who imitate your example, trusting that all suffering we endure for the good of others is that which participates in your suffering and therefore is a suffering that overcomes all hatred, evil, and darkness in the world. We identify with you this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I ask you to hold all the elements until everyone is served. So just take a moment and reflect upon the elements and what they represent in our hands. Taking these elements with all reverence, all respect unto him, the very things that give us life, teach us what true living is, what true love is. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the bread together. He took the cup, and he offered it to them, and said, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's take the cup together. God, I know there's a lot of pain in this room. Pain of memories of abuse, memories of neglect, memories of a broken body, memories of a broken spirit, broken character, broken dignity. Some as even as recent as today, yesterday, this week. And God, I, I pray right now that you would give us, through that great experience of your love that we just partook of, the, the ability the heart to forgive those wrongs. The heart not only to forgive them, but to love in response. God, I pray for anybody in this room that is in a situation of abuse, domestic abuse especially, Lord God, that that you would uh, stop that in Jesus' name, that you would give them the courage to get out of that situation. That is not your will for their life, Lord. Your will for their life is not that they just sit there and be a doormat to someone else, Lord God, but that you get them out of that situation. But Lord God, for all of us, whatever um, pain that we are receiving from others. Lord God, may we, may we stop seeing it as something that we need to avenge for ourselves and begin to see it as an opportunity to become like you, to share in your love, to share in your grace, to share in your character. Give us the vision that you have to see our enemies as future friends and fellow worshipers. Give us the vision that you have to give unconditional love regardless of moral character. We want to be people who obey you in everything. And we're desperate that you do it through us. Love our enemies through us because we're helpless without you. Form us into a person that looks like your cross so that we might share in your resurrection. We give you all praise, glory, and honor this morning. We anticipate um, our enemies coming to see you in us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.